the righteousness of God. What is it, Paul? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's exactly what he said in chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans. It is a salvation for everyone who believes. And he even goes on to say that there is no distinction. What kind of distinction? No distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. Here it is as a gift. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. The first three parts of Pastor Lance Quinn's five-part series on the revealed righteousness of God demonstrate that our justification, our salvation, does not come without God's righteousness. How so? Any so-called righteousness we possess outside of trusting in God's Son, Jesus, counts for nothing with God. But our faith in Jesus, His shed blood and resurrection, wraps us in the robe of God's righteousness and justifies us. As today's teaching begins, Lance underscores what he was teaching in part three, that we can now know where we stand with God. We don't have to wait until we die. Here's part four of The Revealed Righteousness of God. All the full blessings and the full revelation and the full reality of all that God has declared about me, yes, that will come in the life hereafter. But you can know right now that I've been declared right with God. I'm in the right with Him. So we're not, we're not talking about something that's inside a person. It's outside of Him. We're not even talking about the fact that after I re- receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, and God therefore declares me righteous, that's what we call justification, that God transforms me and is transforming righteousness. That begins to occur. That's true. That is true. And this is where so many people have criticized the imputed righteousness view of the reformers. Here's what they say. Oh, everything that you're talking about with regard to God declaring the sinner righteous, uh, if you say that that's an alien righteousness, that it comes to him from outside of his person, if you're telling me it's what God declares about you instead of what God does in you to make you righteous, that's just so much legal fiction. That's the criticism. If God has declared something about you, that He doesn't do in you, then it's just legal fiction. It's just a hocus-pocus. It's what God says about you, but apparently doesn't do in you. That is a criticism of the Reformation. But even the Reformers themselves were so quick to say this, we are justified by or through faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It's not just the idea idea that God declares me righteous, but on the very moment that that declaration comes, God does, in fact, begin to put into me the righteousness of Christ whereby I begin to look like Jesus Christ. You say, do I look like Jesus Christ at that very moment? Not hardly. But it happens progressively. And it happens systematically. And it happens over time. And it's what God does in you. You say, boy, that's a really fine line between some other's view and the reformer's view. Well, it is a fine line, but it is absolutely a critical one. Absolutely a critical one. Thomas Schreiner is helpful when he cautions this way. God's transforming righteousness is still an alien righteousness. Given by God as a gift to sinners, 
Nor is there any suggestion that sinners somehow prepare themselves by good deeds to receive this righteousness. The saving righteousness of God is a gift received by faith alone, and God declares sinners to be in the right before Him on the basis of Christ's atoning death. Yet, God's declaration of righteousness, which is a gift of the age to come invading the present evil age, is an effective declaration. So that those who are pronounced righteous are also transformed by God's grace. You see, there's no bifurcation here. Such a transformation is due solely to God's grace and does not involve a perfect righteousness, nor is there any suggestion that the good works that follow this transformation merit eternal life. And that's the difference. Even God's transforming righteousness that He performs in me does not merit me eternal life. It can't. Nothing I do merits eternal life. Nothing. We would call this in biblical terms legalism if we suggest such a thing. Anything that you and I do in our lives, even by God's transforming grace of righteousness, if it's something that I'm banking on that merits me eternal life, even to the smallest infinitesimal degree, is no good. It's cut off. It's disallowed. God says no. That's why we say that salvation is all of grace. Salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah says. It's of the Lord. It's completely of Him. So whatever is said today about God's righteousness, it isn't something that's coming from within us. You know, even when the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 13 that we are to present our bodily members as instruments of righteousness, he's not saying that in the doing of that, that I merit eternal life with God. Not so. Yes, I am to present my body as a member of righteousness. That's that's God's transforming work. That's what He does in me by the Holy Spirit and by grace. But none of that, none of the presenting of my bodily members, you say, what is that? The, the, The stuff I do in my life with my body and my mind, all the things that are true about me, my body, my mind, my soul, my heart, all of the constituent parts of man, everything that I'm doing to present myself as an instrument of God's righteousness, I never, ever use any of that to say that this is meriting eternal life with God, even in the smallest sense. And we have to make this huge qualifier that no matter what this phrase means, it cannot mean that. Now, with that in mind, here's what I think this phrase means. Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God. I think it has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. I think it's a little bit of both views. If you could wrap the first two interpretations into one and the latter two into one, I think there are some elements of both of them that are true in this phrase. In other words... The vertical dimension of God's righteousness is His objective sense that He is the judge. In other words, Martin Luther had it half right. There is the sense objectively that God is the judge. That He is judging righteously. 
that He is bringing justice. And in that sense, it's, it's really synonymous with the idea that God also brings by His power sin's deliverance. God is a righteous and holy God, and by that righteousness and that holiness, God through His power brings salvation to everyone who believes. It is an attribute of God, the righteousness of God. It is something that's bound up in the person of God. That's, that's its vertical dimension. If you look back in the Old Testament, you're going to see that this idea of salvation and righteousness, just as Paul has given it to us here, has been borrowed, no doubt, by Paul from some of these Old Testament passages that speak of salvation and righteousness together as though they are synonymous. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 98, and you'll see the sense of this. Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, verse 2, the psalmist writes and sings, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. That could have been the very passage that the Apostle Paul used in his mind to pin Romans 1, 16 and 17. Why? Because it's talking both about salvation and righteousness and it's being revealed. You see it? The Lord has made known, verse 2, His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That could have very well been the language of Paul as he thought about Romans 1, 16 and 17. Look also at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. This is more language that speaks in that sense objectively of God's righteousness. Isaiah 46 verse 13. God says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. You see again, righteousness and salvation mentioned in the same passage. Chapter 51, verse 8. Chapter 51, verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Righteousness and salvation. God will reveal that. Chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my deliverance be revealed. You see, it's that same idea of God's salvation and His, His righteousness being revealed. And I think Paul could very well have borrowed those concepts, borrowed that theology, put it in a different context, in a newer context, to speak of the objective righteousness of God and what He brings. But, to suggest, as so many do, that this is the only sense that Paul had in mind here, I think is unnecessary. Why limit it to just the idea that God objectively is going to bring His justice and His salvation to the ends of the earth, to the Jew first and to the Greek? I think it's unnecessary to do that. 
I do believe that Paul is definitely and primarily speaking here in Romans 1.17 of a forensic legal declaration and not simply an objective one. In other words, it is both objective and subjective. God is objectively bringing His justice to bear on sinners and He is also subjectively bringing it to me so that by faith I apprehend that trusting in God allows me through that agency, through that instrumentality, God declaring me righteous in Christ. And that most certainly is subjective. Why? Because I'm the subject. It's happening to me. I don't think that you need to say that this particular phrase, the righteousness of God, is an either-or proposition here. If you study this phrase through the book of Romans and in other places, it may very well have both contexts. Maybe not always in one particular passage. It may have in one particular passage only one of those meanings. But when you put it all together, it is objectively God saying, I'm going to deal with sin by my wrath. And subjectively, how does it come to me? That wrath has been secured by mercy through Christ, covered in Him. That's what I think this phrase means. He declares, does God, the sinner just, acquitted, not guilty, on the basis of the righteousness of God in sending Jesus to the cross in order to vindicate His holiness against sin. And this is my message for you today. Anybody who places their confidence, their trust, their faith in Jesus and what He did to vindicate the wrath of God will be saved and no one else. No one else. That is what God has done in Christ. Your salvation and mine is wholly dependent on what Christ has accomplished on the cross. It's nothing inside of me. It's what God does objectively in dealing with sin, and He did it objectively in bringing Jesus Christ to that cross. Even Isaiah 53 says, it pleased God to crush Him. Who did Christ die for? He died for God. He died for God. Principally and primarily, He died for God. He died to satisfy God's retributive justice. That's His objective sense. That's what God is all about. God must deal with sin. He's not just going to wink at it. He's not just going to overlook it. He must deal with all sin and all sinners. And for anyone who would ever believe, God dealt with that sin by giving Jesus Christ as the payment for that wrath. And how does it come to me? God takes the very retributive justice, His righteousness, His holiness, and He says it can be yours. In fact, it is yours because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And if you would but believe in Jesus Christ and His atoning work, you will be saved, delivered. That's the power of God. That's really the righteousness of God explaining the power of God. This, this righteousness of God explains the power of God. You say, how is it subjective though? Well, I think that's exactly what Paul means when he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's putting it into the subjective dimension. 
That means it can be true of me. It can be true of you. It's to every person who is by faith trusting alone in Jesus Christ. Now, you say, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Why the theology lesson? I'll tell you why. Because today in the church of Jesus Christ, within the very core of evangelicalism itself, this view of the imputation of Christ's righteousness is being attacked with ferocity. It's being discounted. In fact, in 2001, for instance, Dr. Robert Gundry, longtime biblical studies professor at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, wrote two articles in which he disavows this kind of understanding of imputation. And he speaks for many when he writes this, quote, The doctrine that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believing sinners needs to be abandoned. Unquote. Further, he wrote in the periodical Books and Culture, which is a Christianity Today publication, quote, That doctrine of imputation is not even biblical. Still less is it essential to the gospel. End quote. Gundry is advocating, as are many others, the total abandonment of these Reformation truths as found in the Word of God. The understanding of imputation must be jettisoned, he says, because it isn't biblical. And there are many, many, many people who are jumping on this bandwagon. Many people. But I believe that this is true. And it cannot be jettisoned. For if it is jettisoned, then the whole of salvation itself is lost. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And I'll tell you why I think this cannot be jettisoned. Romans 3 verse 21. This is another usage of this phrase, the righteousness of God. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Uh, virtually the same kind of language of Romans 1.17. It's been revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God. What is it, Paul? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's exactly what he said in chapter 1 verse 16 of Romans. It is a salvation for everyone who believes. And he even goes on to say that there is no distinction. What kind of distinction? No distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. Here it is as a gift. Folks, that is a subjective affirmation that that righteousness of God comes to me as a gift. It comes outside of me. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfaction, a propitiation by His blood to be received. How? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness That's His justice, because in His forbearance, His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. In other words, now that righteousness has been revealed in the person of Christ, so that He, God, don't forget this, might be just. There's the objective sense. He might be just. And here's the subjective sense. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There it is. One verse, both dimensions, I believe. He 
He would be, that is God, the just one and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. People often ask me the question, do you believe that Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, etc., etc., those outside of Christianity are going to heaven? What does it say? So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, whatever. No. The one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's law language. God counts us righteous in Christ. You say, well, that was Abraham. That was before Christ. God retroactively fitted Abraham with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though he became someone who was obviously appearing before the cross. We live on this side of the cross, and God gives us the beautiful, wonderful, pristine, precise knowledge that His name is Jesus Christ. We don't have to wonder who the Messiah is. We don't have to wonder of the one that we look to. It's the one that we can look back upon. It's Jesus Christ. Now to the one who works, he says, verse 4, his wages are counted as a gift, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. That word justifies, it's in that same word group, dikaios, dikaiosune. It's that word for just, justice, justifying, justification, justifying the ungodly. Not by their work, but by a gift. And what did Abraham do? He believed God and his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That's the whole point. It wasn't that Abraham was basing his whole life, his whole faith, his whole trust in his circumcision. It's not. Paul even goes on to say... That very thing. Is this blessing, verse 9, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it for just the Jew or how about the Gentile? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was then it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. You see, he was righteous by faith because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ before his circumcision. Don't trust in circumcision. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in anything that you're doing. Don't trust in the signing of a card and walking an aisle. Don't trust in your Bible reading. Don't trust in your prayer life. Don't trust in your money giving. Don't trust in any of that. Trust in Christ by faith. Why? So that at the end of verse 11, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. The father of all those is Abraham and we are his progeny. He's the father of the faithful. All those who believe in Christ by faith. This is, this is Reformation language. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You see, it's coming to me subjectively in the free gift of righteousness which reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. The giving of God's righteousness, which Paul refers to several times in Romans, doesn't need to be a great mystery. Pastor Lance has shown us in the language of Romans chapters 1, 3, 5, and more how Christians clearly are meant to have assurance of their justification now. Do you have that assurance? If you'd like to learn more about how to experience eternal life and joy in Jesus Christ, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, click Broadcast. There you'll find an archive of all of Pastor Lance's messages on the hope and the new life in Jesus Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Lance Quinn, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. And you're always welcome to come worship with us any Sunday morning at 1030 at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Join us tomorrow as Pastor Lance continues with part five of the revealed righteousness of God. I'm Matt Williams for Timeless Truth Today. Thank you for listening.